0: Okay, good evening everybody and um, welcome to the LSE for those of you who are uh, new to here and um, hello to all of those of you who are kind of old-timers and used to coming along to these things. Um, So it's delightful to welcome you here this evening uh, for one of our uh, LSE What Works lectures. Um, I should introduce myself, though I'm really a bit player in these proceedings. Uh, My name's um, Julia Black, I'm a professor here um, and I'm pro-director for research and I'm also based uh, in the law department. And it's a huge honour actually for me to welcome here today um, colleagues who are um, affiliated to the LSE in in different ways and have different relationships. So the main star of the show this evening obviously is is Professor Steve Gibbons, which I'm sure you all know. Steve is a Professor of Economic Geography here at the LSE and Director of our Spatial Economics um, Research Centre. Also delighted to welcome... Uh, Professor Ruth Lupton, who's Professor of Education at Manchester and is also working with our Centre for the Analysis of Social Exclusion on a project which we're running on the coalition's um, government's record on social policy. Um, And that's going to be launched next week. That's the project, not the policy, obviously. The project will be launched next week. Um, so she's working um, strongly with uh, John Hills and um, colleagues in the case in that also delighted to welcome um, Tim Loenig, who's here in our de- Department of Economic History but also has the, um, uh, the, the role of uh, being on secondment to the Department of Education as their Chief Analyst and Chief Scientific Advisor uh, and is the first uh, historian to be appointed to that role much to the joy of, 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 of the select committee I'm told um, so the event tonight is entitled Neighbours, Peers and Educational Achievement and obviously this is a, an issue which is of key social importance uh, within the UK but elsewhere as we think about growing inequalities and of opportunities uh, within society, education is obviously a central part of that, um, that dynamic. And this marks the second in our series of the LSE What Works Lectures. As I mentioned before, this is a particular lecture series which we, where we showcase some of our latest research by academic departments and research centres. started back in 2011. We do them roughly every two years. Um, and academics present, present their key research findings um, and the implications of their studies for, for social policy. So this is the third series of lectures, and this is the second in the third series. We had one a couple of weeks ago, actually, Daniel Ferreira, on um, whether there should be quotas for, for women on boards. And he said no, and I'm really, really cross with him for <laughs> saying that. Um, but anyway, I take that out with him elsewhere. Um, and then the one which we have a couple of weeks' time is given by LSE Cities, Graham Floter and Philip Rose, entitled Better Growth, Better Climate, Cities and New Climate Con- Economy. So that will be here actually next week, um, 29th of January, 630 same time, same place, you're very welcome. Um, but tonight, Professor Steve Gibbons um, asks How sensitive is education to the influence of school friends and neighbours? So, obviously, I've mentioned before economic prosperity across the UK, as we know, is very unevenly um, distributed across space. You know, London is everything. So, I think the north south divide has now moved from Watford to Coventry, um, apparently. So, slight, slight improvement, but not a lot, really. Um, and CERC, which is the, um, the centre which uh, Steve heads up, was established in 2008 to look at really the nature and consequences of these spatial and geographical disparities and to identify appropriate policy responses. So it's very much core to Steve's work and he looks at the impact of um, spatial distribution not only in education but in, in other areas as well, healthcare, crime, transport, um, etc., now I also have to those for those on social media, those of you who are Twitter's and Twitter um, users in the audience. Then the hashtag for today's event is uh, hashtag LSE Works. Um, but also in relation to social media, phones on silent. Okay, please. So, and I just did put mine on silent because it's always really embarrassing as chair when it's your phone that goes off, which always happens. Um, so, but the evening's event is being recorded. Um, hopefully that won't present you with any difficulties. But do. Just we need to remind you of that, make you aware of that, and it will be subject um, uh, be available as a podcast, as most of our lectures are. And you'll be able to download that from the LEC website, hopefully, subject to no technical difficulties. So the format for this evening is Steve is going to speak first, and then um, uh, Professor Ruth Lupton is going to give a, a response, 10 minutes, and then um, Professor Tim Loonig is also going, going to give his response, and then we're going to open up the floor for, for questions and comments. OK.
1: Thank you very much. So, Steve, can I ask you to come forward, then? Uh, thank you. i I've taken some of my notes there, actually. Have
0: mm-hmm. oh, I flipped up your notes? I mm-hmm. have. That's <laughs> Just so, testing.
1: <laughs> thank you, everyone, for coming. I have to apologise. My voice is not uh, as it should be, so uh, I'll be, might be a little, struggling a little bit throughout this talk, but I'll do my best. Um, okay, as Julia outlined, I'm going to talk about um, evidence on the influence of, uh, of neighbours, peers, the people around us on their children's education, uh, thinking about you know, how the type of neighbour that uh, you have and where you live and the type of school friend that your child uh, has when you go to school, how that influences their educational performance. And the evidence is drawn from a range of work over a, a number of years, actually, uh, some of it predating... CERC, the Spatial Economic Research Centre, but most of it uh, carried out by people linked to CERC over the past six years or so. So as Julia said, it was established in 2008 CERC uh, with the aim of uh, looking at the causes and consequences of geographical disparities and this uh, work that I'm going to talk about here is, is links into the, the local aspects of that, looking at how local neighbourhood disparities influence outcomes of people. And I've just got to, Technical hitch there. Oh, we'll right, okay. Okay. I've got a great one. So Here is it. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay, so <coughs> um, So, okay, what am I going to talk about? Um, I'm specifically focusing here on um, the sort of transformative role of neighbours, whether or not uh, neighbours, neighbourhoods, peers actually have a a sort of causal impact on your child's education. So the idea that this um, might matter is pretty compelling. I think intuitively we think that uh, neighbours and peers matter. We're used to the idea that people, you know, we interact with people, people seem to... Influences, so it seems only natural to think that the kind of you know, people you goes to school with, the people in your neighbourhood, might influence their outcomes. And there's some sort of theoretical literature behind this: uh, stories of role models, you know, competition between people, stimulating changes in behaviour, that kind of thing. So there's a sort of intuitive, um, plausible story here, and some theory behind it. Uh, it's also an important question for policy because. Um, it's easy to understand that if low-achieving kids are influenced by high-achieving neighbours or high-achieving peers, then there's clearly a rush now for trying to mix people up, trying to get uh, low-achieving kids' performance up by mixing them with higher-performing kids. And this is one of the bases for um, ideas such as uh, mixed communities policy, actually planning communities so that uh, you've got... Cheap housing and uh, more expensive housing mixed together in, in order to try and mix up the, the pool of people there. Uh, lastly, of course, these questions are interesting simply if you're a parent deciding where to live or where to send your child to school. You kind of like to know the answer to these questions, I guess. Okay. So the style of the research I'm going to be talking about is all quantitative. I mean, you know, if you go and read the original papers, they're fairly technical. Uh, but I'm just going to try and prevent, uh, yeah, present as kind of intuitive. Flavour for what we're doing, and some drafts sort of showing the scale of the effects we're finding. Uh, so this is a kind of radio astronomy you kind know, of approach to social science research. We don't go and to ask people you know, about in, going to the neighbourhoods and ask people about what's going on. We're just looking at big data sets trying to analyse the patterns in the data. Okay, so the structure of the talk is going to go like this. So I'll talk a little bit about the neighbourhood effects, which it means in the, the jargon is, is you know, who your neighbours are and how that affects the performance of your children, or even your own performance, but it's the idea of neighbourhood effects. I'll then go on to discuss peer effects, which is really exactly the same as neighbourhood effects, but is applied in the case where we're thinking of school children going into school, mixing with people of different abilities, their peers. I'll also look at a different aspect of a similar question, which is the turnover of people. So, neighbourhood effects literature, peer effects literature, the research I'm going to present on that is really about the composition of the group, you know, the mix of people in it. Another uh, issue that might be important is mobility how fast people come and go through the neighbourhood, how fast they come and go through the school. So, I'll present a little bit of research on that as well. As you'll see towards the uh, end, this is not so much of a sort of LSE works uh, presentation as an LSE uh, doesn't work kind of presentation, because the effects are going to be relatively small, and I'll, I'll sort of try and round this off by presenting some com- comparison with other things that we've got at some sense of the scale of the impacts of in terms of inputs into education. Right? Lastly, I'll conclude conclu briefly and just sort of outline the policy implications Most of this research has been done, I mean, it's been done with the aim of providing evidence for other people to use in whatever way they see fit. I'm not going to kind of make any big policy prescriptions here. I'm just going to uh, present things as we find them and give a few hints about why it might be relevant. Okay. So, neighbourhood effects. This question about the influence of uh, who your neighbours are on children's performance in this case, performance at school. Uh, so just to kind of fix ideas about the question we're asking here, we're not sort of thinking, you know, the overall impact of different neighbourhoods, including, you know, all the kind of environmental factors, the types of buildings, the services, the amenities are there, that are there. We're thinking very specifically about this sort of question. You've got one neighbourhood like this and another neighbourhood like this, and this uh, person in the middle here is, you know, your child, and this is some sort of clone of your child. Imagine all these people, the, the blue people, are sort of, you know, children of rich kids and white people are children of poor kids, uh, or perhaps the blue kids are, you know, higher, higher ability and the white kids are lower ability. Does it make a difference for your child, this guy here, uh, which neighbourhood they live in, you know, assuming that other aspects of the neighbourhood are exactly the same in terms of the school and the family background that the child's exposed to? So this is the question we're really fundamentally asking, so it's a sort of quite specific uh, issue. Okay, Okay, so to get a sort of first uh, flavour for this, I'm going to go back to some research I did very early on. Uh, This is not not circle-related research, it was actually part of my PhD back in 2002, and this was looking at the National Child Development Study, which is a survey uh, which followed up a cohort of children that were born in 1958 in one week and followed them up at intervals over the decades that followed. Uh, it's a bit like this 7-Up programme you might have seen on TV, but there's uh, a data equivalent to it. OK. Um, so in this picture, what have we got? Uh, I sort of got this National Child Development uh, study. Uh, I linked it to census data um, 1971. I've got information on where these children lived in the 1970s when they were sort of age 13. And I've got a picture here which just sort of grasps the average relationship between uh, the, type, the quality of the neighbourhood that you're brought up in, here measured in terms of the proportion of people with A levels or more, uh, against the probability that you ended up with A levels at age 33. This child ended up more highly qualified. And you can see there's a very strong relationship. This is a simple correlation, really. So this is the sort of picture that probably motivates our intuition that neighbourhoods might matter. But, of course, um, this isn't a causal relationship. I mean, if I picked a person at random and moved them from this neighbourhood up to this one, I wouldn't necessarily expect to see this change in in performance, right? Because what's going on here is that we're picking up a lot of family background factors. So the fact is that... uh, People with higher education, people in these sort of higher, level, um, higher education level wards here tend to be richer, they tend to port into these communities because these communities have got better amenities, maybe better schools. So there's sorting of rich and poor people, higher educated people, lower educated people across these communities. So there's a correlation between you know, your own child's family background, the one you're trying to look at the uh, 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 ultimate performance of, and the the type of neighbours that they're mixed with. This is what the economists call sorting, largely driven by housing costs, right? It's the housing prices that drive people into different locations and generates this kind of association. And you can see this um, pretty easily. If we just do something simple and control statistically using regression methods for family background, you can see this relationship is much diminished. There's much. Uh, smaller increase in the probability that you've got A-levels as you move from the bottom of the distribution to the top in terms of the quality of the neighbourhood. Even then we might worry that we're just not controlling for enough. We're not really comparing people like for like here. This might be some sort of residual family background difference, right? Um, We could look at this another way Uh, rather than adjusting things statistically, We could do something rather simple just look at a rather more homogenous group whose location choices don't depend so much on their incomes. In this case, social tenants in the 1970s. Okay, You had some choice over where you live, but largely determined so much by your income. And you get the same picture, a much smaller increase in the probability of getting A-levels in relation to uh, the quality of the neighbourhood you were raised in during, as a teenager. Sadly, we don't really think these days that these kind of uh, techniques uh, are sufficient, and I'll come on to explain uh, what we're going to do in, in greater detail in a second but first thing is just look at a general picture that captures the problem that we're facing you've got this is a, a, this is a three-dimensional version of what I was trying to represent before uh, on, on this axis here we've got uh, the, the, the type of neighborhood that the person lives in from the sort of lowest ranks in terms of education. Uh, Status up to the highest ranked. Here we've got the rank in terms of the parents, in terms of the lowest educated parents, the highest educated parents. And up here we've got the education of the child when they become an adult at age 33. And you can see here pretty clearly you've got this really strong relationship, which is well known, between parental background and and children's achievements later on, and this much weaker relationship uh, across the distribution of types of neighbourhood. Okay. Then what we're picking up, when we don't really properly control for the family background, is we're picking up some sort of cross-section through here, which is the you know, sort of naive relationship you tend to pick up when you look at the link between neighbourhood quality and educational achievement. To try and get around that, researchers have tried to find better methods, really, of un- unpacking this real causal link between neighbourhood quality and uh, educational outcomes. You know, if you want to do, a, if you want to find out about causality, what you'd usually like to do is conduct an experiment. This is pretty difficult uh, in this context. It's been done. It's been done in the United States. There's a move, the so-called Moving to Opportunity program. You, uh, sort of had, they, ran, they ran an experiment, which relocated people from the low-income projects out to the sort of slightly higher-income suburbs, and then observed what happened to them after a number of years. We haven't done that in the, in the UK. Uh, there are clearly implementational problems, a pretty costly thing to do, difficult to make it work properly, and also sort of some ethical issues if you were trying to get the experiment designed in a way that would really be ideal, which would probably be Randomly assigning babies at birth to different neighbourhoods and then forcing the parents to live there for the rest of the child's lives, which uh, is it, it, you know, difficult to do. You typically get funding for that, difficult to get <laughs> ethical approval. So, we haven't got these experiments. So, what people, researchers, have tried to do in the kind of research that I'm going to outline here is use existing data sets and try and transform them in clever ways to kind of isolate. Arguably random sources of variation in neighbour quality uh, to, try to sort of get kids that are exposed to different levels of neighbourhood quality through sort of random events, if you like. Or, in the case I'm going to talk about here in a second, um, uh, look at how a given child's experience in terms of education changes as the neighbourhood changes around time. Okay. Okay, so um, just to, to sort of what's uh, uh, useful to um, look at here is a, is a timeline of people's educational history, careers through uh, schooling in England. So they start off at uh, in primary school here, Key Stage One from age six to seven, and then Key Stage Two, age eight to eleven, and then they move to secondary school and they have this Key Stage Three period. This is the bit we're going to look at, and we're gonna, the, the great thing is that kids are tested a lot in, in, in England. Uh, and uh, that's yeah. great for researchers, <laughs> and so great for kids. But the Tesla Key Stage 1, we can use this as a measure of kids' prior achievements, they tested at Key Stage stage 2, we can use this as a sort of baseline, and we look at the the change in test scores between Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3 when they're tested at age 14. Sadly, this this no longer exists, Key Stage 3, it's been ditched, shame for researchers. (laughs) So we're going to look at the change over this period, what happens in terms of the gain in achievements as the neighbours change. Uh, around a child that stays put in the neighbourhood so we're looking at the effects of the movers on the stairs we've also done this looking up to, to GCSEs we're going to present the results at this stage so again just to uh, fix our ideas on what we're doing imagine this is a, a sort of you know, rather low uh, uh, educational status neighbourhood and gradually people move in and out and it becomes more highly educated we're going to see what's happened to this uh, kid in the middle here as a result of those changes and we're going to do similar things looking at... Um, changes like this where it goes from a good neighbourhood to a less good neighbourhood. I'm going to use all this variation to try and estimate these effects on this child in the middle here. So this is what we find. Um, I'll just explain, uh, these these graphs are going to look similar over all the things I present mainly. Uh, We're going to look at changes going from the average neighbourhood to the top one in ten neighbourhood. We're going to look at the impact of that on a child's test scores measured on a scale of one to a hundred. So imagine you rank everyone in terms of their test for achievements from 1 to 100, and and we're going to use their position on that scale as a measure of their outcome. So the simple correlation in terms of these Key Stage 3 scores and the neighbourhood change here is reasonably substantial. If you move from the average neighbourhood to the top 1 in 10, you'd be about uh, 9 points higher up this scale. Not massive, that's 9 points out of 100, but still there. Now look what happens if we look at progress between Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3, just to control for the child's initial conditions, if you like, their initial achievement, control for their family background, it goes to virtually nothing. Okay. Uh, that's statistically significant. I hear we can detect it as being different from zero statistically, but it's, it's negligible. You can do more things. You can control. But you can compare children in the same school. That becomes vastly small. Then now you can even compare people in the same neighbourhood in different years. Uh, that's still negligibly small, statistically insignificant. This is measuring neighbourhood uh, quality, if you like, by the proportion of kids with high Key Stage one scores. You could look at uh, the um, the kids who've got um, preschool meals. i.e. they're on low income families. You get a very similar picture. In fact, I can't. you can't even see them. The we'll figures down at the end here. You can look at special educational needs; yes, it's the same. You can look at the proportion of boys; that's the same. There's nothing there. Okay. So that picture just immediately suggests to us that really what we observe uh, in terms of the correlation between neighbourhood quality and child achievements isn't causal. And it looks like uh, actually when you focus and drill down and more precisely to so the causal linkages, there's not a lot there. Another approach to this carried out by my uh, colleague Felix Weinhart, he looked at the impact of uh, moving into social housing. This is a quite clever research design, again focusing on this uh, sort of structure here, this timeline. You could look at kids who move into social or non-social housing over this period before their Key Stage 3 tests. You look at kids who move into social or non-social housing after the Key Stage 3 tests. Well, if you think social housing environments have a negative impact on child achievements, you'd expect to see it having an impact here. You wouldn't expect to see it having an impact if you moved after key stage three, right? And you can construct an estimate based on comparing the movers into social and non social housing before and after these key stage three moves. This is what you find. If you move before key stage three, uh, which is where you'd expect it to have an impact, indeed you find if you move into a social housing neighbourhood, you've got lower. Test scores here. Again, this is on this 1 to 100 scale. Uh, if you move into a non social housing neighbourhood, it's uh, much higher. But this is just a difference in terms of the kind of kids that are in non social housing and the kind of kids that are in social housing. It's nothing really to do with the social housing environment. You can see this because if you look again, what happens after Key Stage 3, you've got exactly the same thing. So these kids are moving after Key Stage 3, they've got the same test scores. So this is, you know, these, these differences are nothing to do with, actually, the external social housing environment It's to do with the family background of the children and their own uh, in sort of internal disadvantages. You could construct an estimate of the impact of this. It's very small, again, on that 1 to 100 scale, statistically <coughs> insignificant. <coughs> So now let's focus on, on who your child goes to school with, the, 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 the education of the, of the, of the um, school friends they go to school with. Uh, the ideas are pretty much the same here, I don't need to explain this again. Um, essentially we're going to look at what happens this time as you move from primary school to secondary school when you get this big reshuffling of children into different classes and schools, you get changes in peer group, we're going to look at what happens for children actually the, making the same Transition from a given primary school to a given secondary school, what happens in terms of their expected progress up through Key Stage 3 as a result of experiencing a better peer group at the beginning here. Okay. Similar idea to what we did before. So again, the, the scale's the same here, moving from the average school to the top school in terms of peer group quality, uh, and the scale is on this 1 to 100 uh, in terms of outcomes. This is sort of an adjusted figure. Uh, I Again, mean, a large impact. This is what happens when we look at progress between key stage two and key stage three. Well, that's not so small, still reasonably large. Okay. But now let's do this thing where we're looking at, um, you know, we're comparing kids moving within the same school pair to try and sort of get rid of the factors that are due to you know, preferences for different types of schools, family background that might be correlated with school choice, that kind of thing. Uh, looking at changes over time here in terms of peer group quality for different kids in different years following the same primary school to secondary school transition now it becomes much, much smaller you can do more, you can control for a number of different things here, nothing much changes, uh, my colleague Silver went further and did a different paper compared kids uh, the effects on different subjects because in different subjects you get different peer groups due to the different skills of the classmates, the schoolmates in these different subjects numbers are pretty small again ok, so now turning to this mobility question, um, Maybe, you know, it suggests here that the, the composition of neighbourhoods matters not at all. Uh, we've seen that the composition of the peer groups at school maybe matters a bit. Perhaps mobility is more important, turnover of kids. Perhaps, you know, having people going through your neighbourhood at a fast rate, it means you can't make friends, you can't sort of form important attachments and, and ties with people. Perhaps having kids move quickly through the school the class that you're in causes disruption to teaching. Um is what we find here. So what we're doing here is looking at this this question whether you know, keeping the global composition constant. If you kind of shuffle people around like this, you know, just a higher rate of turnover result in uh, poorer performance for you know uh, your your child in the middle here. Right. What do we find? Well it all looks is gonna look pretty similar. You're gonna look quite familiar this. It doesn't start off with quite such a big impact, so actually turnover isn't so strongly associated with um, or achievement, Key Stage 3. Once you look at progress, it drops down quite a lot. Once you look at the same. You could look at the same school and look at turnover in the same school in different years and see how that impacts on children in those different years, and compare across years within the same school. That becomes near negligible again. Okay. So again, uh, these numbers are actually start statistically significant. We can distinguish them from zero, but again, they're, they're sort of economic meaningful terms. They're not 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 that not that big. Okay, so I think the so, um, this, this story I've tried to sort of show you here is that really when you uh, control for important factors, when you kind of make the appropriate adjustments to control for family background, the kind of school people go to, that kind of thing, uh, neighbourhoods don't matter uh, very much at all. Um, school, seem, school peer groups might matter a bit, um, but to get a sort of sense of where, how these things sort of compare with other things, let's uh, compare them with various other things that we've got some idea about. OK, so I'm going to show you the, 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 the estimates I've presented already in terms of the impacts of neighbours, the impact of neighbour mobility, school peers and so on. I'll present you some estimates based on some work I've got in progress on the, the effect of teacher mobility within schools, you know, how fast teachers come and go within the school. I'll present you some results on teacher quality, which have nothing to do with me, they're just taken from the international literature, and I'll present you some results on the impact of resources, like putting money into schools. So here's our uh, neighbourhood effect estimate, very, very teeny tiny down the bottom here. Here's our neighbour mobility one, a bit, bit bigger but not really very impressive. The school peers one, that looks, uh, looks a bit more exciting. Peer mobility again, rather small. Teacher mobility actually has a, a reasonable impact but not, not that much, not as much as you might think. Now there's this teacher quality literature which essentially tries to look at um, everything that you could uh, explain in terms of student achievement, student progress uh, associated with particular teachers. So you can try and recover the average impact that a teacher has on children year after year after year and distinguish the, the teachers that are really good at raising student achievement from the ones that are not so good at raising student achievement and use that as a measure of of teacher quality. We don't know what it is, we don't know how to affect it and how to change it, but it is a measure of of teacher quality in some sense in terms of raising test scores. So this is what would happen if you went from... Remember, these are all moving from uh, the average neighbourhood to the top 10%. This is moving from the average teacher to the top 10% teacher. So much more impressive in terms of the scale of, um, of impact on performance. Still, you might think that's not a lot, is it? I mean, that's not, not as much as you might think. Going from the average to the, to the best one in 10 teachers, you've only moved six points up the 1 to 100 scale. I'm afraid that's how it is in education research. So these, are, these are reasonable size impacts. I mean, most of what determines variation in achievements across kids is their family background, their innate ability. It's not very easy to shift it using policy levers and uh, 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 even pedagogic techniques. Okay. Lastly, I'll show you resources. Uh, this is based on my own estimate of the impact of resources. Based on a research design where we compared neighbouring schools on different sides of local education authority boundaries that receive different levels of funding due to anomalies in the formula. Okay. And some of these schools receive markedly different levels of funding. Uh, and so we looked at the, the, the impact of that, and here I've given it in terms of the impact of 30% more resources, which is roughly, again, moving from the sort of average level of, of funding to the top 1 in 10 level of funding, given the distribution of funding. In schools at the time, this study was carried out. Of course, it's a bit open-ended. You could increase resources as much as you want, didn't you? But so this is—you know—these these things are much, 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 much bigger than these. So I think you'll agree. I mean, the the peer effects one isn't—it's is, it's reasonably uh, sizable, but these ones are just non-existent relative to these uh, these effects. Okay, so. The, As I read to conclude here, this is all I've got to say. Um, What's the the conclusions from this? What's the uh, policy implications? Well, uh, in my view, based on this research, my interpretation of the evidence is that neighbourhood composition is completely irrelevant for a child's education. It's just not really a factor to be concerned about. So if you're worried about the bad kids moving into your neighbourhood, don't be. They're not going to be a problem uh, for your child, uh, as far as we can tell here. You might be more worried if there's a lot of turnover and disruption in your school, in your neighbourhood. Uh, you know, we've got statistically significant impacts from this, but they're still again very, very small. Okay, there's, but possibly you know there are stories you could you could uh, believe here in terms of the disruption to teaching, breaking of social ties due to this turnover in the in the neighbourhood. There's quite a lot of sociological theory that would, would underpins this idea, so there may be something in that. Okay, so there, the, the, this number's actually wrong. Sorry, it's. 0.04%. Uh, the school peer groups do seem to be moderately more important. There was a, a reasonable increase at this scale from a change in peer group quality. But actually, if you looked at how much of that, uh, the, the overall inequality in pupil achievement that could explain, it's teeny tiny, tiny part of it. You know, the share uh, of variation in pupil achievement attributable to this variation in peer group quality in schools is about 0.04%. Right, tiny share. So ultimately, in terms of policy, uh, there doesn't really seem to be any role for engineering neighbourhood mixing, mixing uh, communities by planning to try and address education performance or inequality, as far as I can tell here. Yeah. Okay. So when the F- first started, we wrote a policy paper. Paul Cheshire has been a uh, uh, spoken about this issue a lot. He wrote some papers, sort of arguing there was very little evidence for mixed community planning, and in fact it could be actually you know, uh, uh, harmful. Uh, and over the period of uh, doing this kind of research, we've learned nothing else that to, to sort of commit that that position is wrong. So it doesn't look like, if, you know, if you're t- treating, you don't want to be treating mixing policy, uh, you want to see the rationale for it as being to actually uh, improve children's achievements or any other long-term outcomes. There may be lots of other reasons why you'd want to do it, but one of them is to actually improve educational outcomes for children. From the, the school policy point of view, again, the, the lesson here seems to be if you put these things to one side, these compositional issues, the sort of social interactions with people don't seem to be the big thing that drives educational achievement. We should be much more focused on putting resources into school, trying to find out how to improve teacher quality, uh, those kinds of things. Okay, thank you.
0: Great. Thank, you. great, thank you very much Steve, that was fascinating. So I'm going to ask um, Ruth now to, to respond first with some comments. Okay, great,
2: thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Hear me okay? Yeah. Um, so uh, just a little bit about myself. I mean I've kind of grappled with these same sorts of questions. Uh, about uh, neighbourhood uh, and peer effects but with different techniques so uh, I d- have gone into schools and neighbourhoods and asked people and, and in fact our careers have developed over the same sort of period been totally different, um, using totally different uh, methodologies and, and then um, uh, uh, during the second half of the 2000s I was quite involved in the whole development of the uh, not the development of, uh, but the evaluation of the, uh, the, the then Labour governments and mixed communities policies, and led the evaluation of the mixed communities initiative and it tried to do some work on the evidence for and against mixed communities um, uh, policies. So um, this qualifies me very little to comment on any of Steve's statistics or methods, but I wanted to say just a couple of things, one about policy and then... Uh, another about um, some of the relationships on that last slide. Um, so um, I, I suppose the, f- um, the, the first thing is to say that um, you know one of the, uh, the great things about Steve's work, which he's so neatly synthesised here, is, is persistent and, uh, uh, and, and serious attempt to deal with some of the complexities of neighbourhood effects research. So questions like what is a neighbourhood, the differential effects of neighbourhoods on different people, uh, what happens when people move, what's the effect on movers, what's the effect on stayers uh, 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 and what's uh, one of the things that's very difficult to untangle is the relative importance of schools and neighbours given that those things happen at the same time to to people and and Steve's persistently tried to unravel these uh, relationships um, uh, with sophisticated methods it enables us to isolate these specific mechanisms in a very clear way I think for me the difficulty is when we try to take this into the policy context and this is what happened with the mixed communities uh, policy in the the last uh, decade. So policies are rarely only concerned with one goal. Um, The decisions have costs as well as benefits uh, and everything's constrained by what's already there um, and the kind of possibilities for... Uh, uh, for action. I'll come back to to that in a second. So it it becomes when we get clear messages like we do here, it's quite difficult uh, uh, to translate them into the messiness of a policy context, I think. So um, I read all... I look at neighbours from a more sociological perspective, and I, I tend to think of them not in terms of their utility to the individual, in terms of in this case, educational attainment, but in a broader sense as Sites of family and community life, sources of ontological security, uh, identity formation, uh, and so on. And and if you think like this, um, there might be other reasons why we want to have uh, mixed uh, neighbourhoods, not just for individual um, gains, but as as a society, for example, to promote social integration, uh, cohesion, and to prevent concentrations of problems. So one difficult neighbour, it can be uh, uh, manageable to live next door to, but 10 or 20 uh, create much more uh, uh, difficult. And and you were very clear, Steve, that you measured neighbourhood composition, not all of these things around, which are a lot harder uh, to measure. And the same goes for schools. We might want to think about the social value of schools and their role in developing the citizens uh, of the future, as well as their value for Uh, individual attainment and so I think if you think more along those kind of lines you can come and I'm not really saying that I uh, think uh, the evidence supports this but you might come to a policy intent which was would more social mixing be desirable uh, for societal reasons Um, so you would turn the question on its head here should the policy be motivated by uh, dragging the attainment of the lower income children up by mixing their neighbourhoods Or should we be taking reassurance from these findings, uh, as Steve hinted at, that more social mixing of neighbourhoods and schools has no detrimental effect um, on on children's attainment? So that should be a reassuring message uh, to people who are seeking to move because they don't want their children to mix with those uh, kids or to be taught in classrooms with those uh, kids. Uh, So I think you can read these in very, findings, very different ways, depending on where you're coming at the policy question. And then you come to the question of whether this knowledge should be applied to new neighbourhoods only or existing neighbourhoods, and the last government got in a terrible knot with that. Those are two very, very different questions. Should you try to build mixed neighbourhoods in the future or should you take unmixed neighbourhoods and move some of the people out in order to move some other people in in order to create a mix? and My reading of the evidence on that, although it's not very strong, is that there are quite enormous short-term costs uh, to the individuals already in situ. So you've got this very interesting trade-off between the costs to existing residents... Uh, and the benefits to future residents uh, uh, so uh, uh, and the same thing as well with uh, with schools should we, be, should we be looking for a more mixed school system in the future or should we try to mix up existing schools by for example bussing children around and what are the costs of that and do they outweigh the benefits so I think, um, I, I think it, uh, these, the clear relationship or non-relationship between neighbourhood uh, effects and attainment is a useful one to know but it's Uh, when we get into the policy context, it's only beginning to tell us some of the story, I think. Um, And the second thing that I want uh, just to touch on is is these relationships in the final bar chart, which I thought were really interesting, the big bar on uh, teacher quality and the little bar on neighbourhood effects. I'd like to see those two things as um, related to one another. Um, So my quantitative research in schools in different neighbourhoods of different composition... Um, has shown quite substantial impacts on the social relationships and organisational processes of schools in different different kinds of places with different levels of advantage. So the kind of things that I'm talking about are teachers spending more time in disadvantaged schools for example doing things like parental uh, liaison, chasing absence, providing materials for children who don't have them like pens and pencils and things, managing uh, behaviour. So there's... um, Uh, 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 spending less time therefore in some cases on doing things like planning enrichment activities or monitoring uh, progress and another really striking thing was the difference in the emotional climate of schools in different contexts so uh, disadvantaged schools in some contexts less predictable, more conflicted uh, more challenging and and with a stronger emphasis on things like uh, teachers tending to describe their role more in terms of love care, mothering, the, these uh, kind of things. So quality problems in disadvantaged schools, I think, need to be seen not just in terms of teacher recruitment, which would be a reading that says that teacher quality is a, a kind of fixed uh, a characteristic, uh, but that teacher quality is a set of practices that needs to be sustained and developed. And some of these contexts uh, put, put downward pressures on, uh, on teacher quality even if your teachers start off being teachers of high quality I think this has got some implications for things like the Teach First programme And it was illustrated to me uh, by a teacher I spoke to in a very disadvantaged school who said to me I thought I was a good teacher before I came here but the first term, God it was awful he said, I, I forced into a conflict situation several times a day, I never taught a good lesson so, uh, so this sort of downward uh, pressure on quality, and that's not just about neighbourhood composition, it's about other things in the neighbourhood and uh, school as well, and different kinds of, of contexts, but I have never managed to persuade anyone, I wanted to make this point part, partly because Tim is here, I've never managed to persuade anybody, like Steve or anybody else, to uh, explore this link in a quantitative way, so we tend to say, well it's either teacher quality, or it's peer effects, or it's school effects, but I think there's a, a relationship which could be explored between a neighbourhood composition and teacher quality um, and between school composition and teacher quality. Um, And and I think we could do that in ways which would lead uh, to quite uh, some strong uh, uh, policy conclusions about the kind of resources that uh, we might need. So the end bars on this graph are also, I think... Related in ways that perhaps need to be explored more. So I'm, um, I was really uh, pleased to see this uh, synthesis, a very uh, manageable for me synthesis of your work over the last uh, several years, uh, Steve. And like any research, um, what you see wants makes you want to know uh, more. Uh, so uh, this is why I suggest a few more tasks. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you.
3: So just before I comment on uh, Steve's paper is this? Working? Oh yes. the, the light isn't on so I thought it wasn't working If you send me a research design for that idea that's a good idea and I'll see if I can persuade an academic to do it and I have a great advantage in persuading academics which is I have a research budget and I find people are much more likely to do something if you pay them to do it than if you just suggest it to them at an event So we'll see what we can do um, Steve's eyes are lighting up now So this is a big issue. I've spent the afternoon at an OECD conference looking at what works and what doesn't work in different countries. And one of the things that is controversial and interesting is school choice. And one of the fears of school choice is that it can be divisive, it can lead to stratification, and so on. And people worry about that for two reasons. For the legitimate reasons that Ruth outlined, do we believe mixing is inherently valuable? That's very much a question for society rather than technocrats in the uh, Department for Education. That's a legitimate policy intent. But also, is it actually bad for education? And to a good extent, Steve has given us a pretty clear answer today. It isn't. Frankly, if we're within point, I mean, even with his decimal place in the right place, you know, 0. 0.4 of a percent, it's, it's statistically significant and utterly irrelevant. It's like the time I once found that people were a quarter of a millimetre taller under some circumstances than others. You know, if you can't see it, the statistical significance is utterly, utterly irrelevant. So it is an important issue. It's important internationally. I'm also always delighted to see people use the National Pupil Database. I don't know how much it costs my department a year to produce that thing, but it's a fortune. But it's a fortune well spent. We gave it out to 500 and something researchers last year, one of whom was Steve or possibly the year before, and it's producing really good work like that, and it's fantastic to see the results of it. So, it doesn't matter. And that's a bit, you know, you're not going to get on the Today programme so easily when you find that something doesn't matter. It's, it's, It's harder. I mean, that's the way it is. It's harder to get something published as an academic, but it is just as important to know something doesn't matter in terms of preventing bad policies and supporting good policies. So I'm just as delighted to be here today to talk about this as I would be if Steve had found the answer was 10. 10 would be implausible on his scale, but I am still just as pleased to be here. So, there are some implications for DfE, and one of the implications is that we've frankly got enough on our plate as it is, with challenges that are real, without having another one added to it. So, at one level, I'm delighted at your findings, because it means it's something, if ministers come to me and say, you know, we can see other advantages or disadvantages to mixing, what does it mean for educational? I can say, nothing. Absolutely squiggly dit. You know, one person in a thousand will get one grade higher at GCSE, or some such. my back of the envelope suggests that's about right for your percentage you know nobody is ever going to notice and it would be fairly costly to do you know busing is not a cheap policy trying to segregate and desegregate and resegregate society is not a cheap policy to do either and there are social costs to things like busing it's useful when children have their friends in the same area it's useful that children can walk to their friends houses there are social gains from having community schools even if that community is uniformly rich or uniformly poor. So, what do we want to say then beyond this? Well, ultimately, there's something deeply counterintuitive about what Steve has found. You talk to parents, they worry a lot about this. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it so counterintuitive we don't believe it? Now, you don't actually have to have good reasons not to believe someone. Because ultimately, Steve has to make a case and persuade us. So it is possible, actually, I think, for us in the audience in government to suck our fingers and say, yes, he has great and clear results, but, 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 we worry about missing variables. We worry about, is it true everywhere? That is a legitimate response. And I want to suggest to Steve some areas where he could push this further. So this is my referees report with my other LSE academic hat on. (laughs) So first, we know that what we call in DfE the transition matrix, the connection between your grade at one age and your grade at the next age, is much tighter for children who are doing well at school. So the classic one here is if you are so-called level 5 at age 11, which puts you in the top quarter, we can predict your GCSE results really very accurately. It almost doesn't matter what school you go to at that point. I exaggerate only slightly. But if you're a level 3 child, so you're in the bottom 10-15%, not necessarily that you're stupid, but you haven't done well in school so far, particularly if you're white British, immigrant kids are different, they often don't do well because they're recent immigrants, they don't speak enough English, put them to one side, the transition matrix is much less close, suggesting that things like school and perhaps neighbourhood effects and perhaps peer effects could matter more. So one of my challenges to Steve is does it still apply when we look at that group of children? And they're the group of children for whom school is most important. The second group is what about extreme neighbourhoods? So you've gone from the middle to the top 10%. And I'm guessing the distribution is symmetric and you'd get similar results if you'd have presented them here from the bottom 10%. But what about the extremes? Not all of us live within 40 percentage points of the average. Indeed, 20% of us don't in the way that you've structured it. So how bad does a neighbourhood have to get before it is really undermining children's education? that seems to me a legitimate question which we in government would be interested in the answer to. And if you can provide us with that answer, we would be really pleased. In that context as well, i quite like to see the analysis done with and without London because we know that London schools are now different. They're really profoundly different. Uh, Chris Cook's work in the FT uh, showed that if you were in the bottom 30% at age 11, by your results in Key Stage 2 tests, and you move into London, you will do 50% better in your GCSEs than if you stay outside of London. And conversely, if you leave London, your results will go down by the same amount. If you're in the top 10%, it makes no difference. You can be educated anyway. You still do well. Those kids are self-motivated. They love to learn, and they cope. But those bottom kids, schools really seem to matter. Communities really seem to matter. We don't really know why that is. But something is going on. So is it different inside and outside London? Um, The other thing I'd be interested in is primary schools. Because actually, sorry to say this, but 11 to 14 are not the most interesting years. The most interesting years are as early as possible. Because we know, as I said a moment ago, that by the age of 11, if you're doing well in school, you're a self-directed learner, and frankly, you fly. You fly all the way into the Russell Group, out the other end, generally to a good job. So it's the early years. When is that sort of pattern fixed? And Claire Crawford at at Warwick in the IFS work has shown it really is fixed by 16. And frankly, universities' outreach programs are pretty much a waste of time. We're all just fighting over the same handful of poor kids who've done well in school. We're not increasing the supply of those kids. I remember Nick Barr saying at LSE that if LSE was serious about recruiting really bright kids, we should scrap bursaries, etc., and put the money into preschool education in any poor part of Britain, because that would do more to increase increase the supply of poor kids who could get to a university like ours. And, you know, the evidence is broadly speaking with Nick. So what about primary? And here I want to make you an offer that I think you'll like, which is we have just changed the methods by which primary schools will be assessed. There will still be a target. It's going to be 85% of children have to reach level 4B. That's a pretty ambitious target. The vast majority of schools will not hit that in the short run. So we're also saying to schools, well, if your kids come in... Not where you would like them to come in and you make really good progress, we will also say you're doing fine. But if you want to have that opportunity, you are going to have to assess them when they arrive through a baseline assessment. Lots of people offer these already. The most famous one is done by the University of Durham. It's called PIPs. It's used now uh, by the OECD around the world. It's a pretty darn reliable form of assessment. A school could still game it, but if done properly, it works well. We're expecting schools will overwhelmingly do this, and as a result, those data will be in the National Pupil Database. Now, of course, that won't help you, because you won't know how they do later in life, so you'll have to wait some time. But those children will go through, and you, or maybe your successor, will be able to do what you have done between baseline in reception and Key Stage 1, and then later Key Stage 2. And I am not as convinced that it will be as clear-cut at that age as it is later. Because I think their peer effects do matter. I went to a governing body meeting recently of a school that I was visiting, and they were discussing the popular kid in reception one and two. And the popular kid in year two is also really hard-working, and they love this kid. they were saying, you know, if ever he threatens to leave, they're basically going to bribe the parents to stay, because he's such a good role model. Whereas in year one, the popular kids are all the disruptive kids. And they were talking about how to try and overcome this because of the peer effects now that I accept is an anecdote if Ruth had done it it would be be proper scientific research but for me it was just visiting one school but you can easily imagine the peer effects would be bigger at that age when children are still learning how to learn so as I say I make you that offer that I will get you the data okay um, to conclude teachers matter more than anything else I think that's what we saw because those uh, funding rises that you were talking about are frankly inconceivable. They would cost us £10 billion. Now, I don't know if any of you have got £10 billion spare, but if you do, please, uh, annually, of course, that's recurrent, if any of you would like to donate £10 billion to the Department of Education uh, to ensure the outcomes that Steve has just shown, please see me afterwards. I don't think we do sell knighthoods, but I think something could be arranged. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, I'm on the record, aren't I? Oops. Uh, but let's be clear here. That money is equivalent to 36,000 pounds per class of 30 kids as an order of magnitude. That would if we put that all into teacher salaries, that would take the average teacher salary from 34,000 to 70,000 to get a 7 percentage points. If there are any teachers in the room, I'd love to be able to offer that to you, but unless somebody gives me the 10 billion, I'm not going to be able to. But I suggest for less than that, we can get that 5.63 effect you showed. And that's why the single most important thing for any of you to do research on is teacher quality. What makes a good teacher, and above all, not what makes a good teacher in the way that there is some definition of a good teacher. There's no such person as a good teacher who's a good teacher in every environment. What is it, and you're spot on there, what is it that liberates the best that our existing stock of teachers can be and that identifies the characteristics that makes it more likely someone will be a good teacher? When a failing school is taken over, and there are some schools that are genuinely failing children, A handful of teachers leave, or are persuaded to leave, but the vast majority stay, and the school's results go up. Teachers don't work in isolation. They work in the context of other teachers and school leadership. So what is it that we as a society need to do in order to liberate teachers to be the best they can? Because if we can find that, then we can save £10 billion, and we can deliver the standard of education that our country needs and our children deserve. So for those of you who are doing research... That is the million-dollar, ten-million-pound question that I want you to answer. And when you come up with that answer, come and see me. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So, we've got a very um, stimulating discussion there, um, and I think an awful lot of awful lot of things to discuss. So, I'm going to suggest that we take. Um, Questions in a group of, a group of say, three questions at a time, and then I'll um, ask the panel to answer them as a group rather than just go back and forth one to the other. A um, couple of normal conventions um, for LSE public lectures, so just wait for the roving mic to come. Uh, it makes it much easier for everybody else to hear your question. And if you can just identify yourself and, and where you're from or your, your background or some kind of affiliation, that, that just helps us to know who you are. Um, in the audience. Um, so just you just need to indicate by, by waving your hand around and a roving mic will go. I will actually call you out by, by description of what you're wearing. It's always good to wear something bright on these occasions, I find. Um, so we've got a hand going up in the back first for the first question. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Um, my name's Kavita Kulpas. I'm a parent and I'm utterly incensed by what I've heard this evening. Um, I decided to stay because I wanted to ask the question. First of all, I would change that final conclusion. We should be more concerned about school, about misuse of school resources and head teacher quality. I would completely take out the governor layer out of primary schools. They serve absolutely no purpose whatsoever. I have spent 10 years bringing up my daughter. She is three years ahead of her peer group. She has been forced to return to a school where she is unhappy, unstimulated, and unwilling to go on a daily basis. But she has been forced to go there by her father because he has got commercial interests that link with the head teacher and the governors. That is the problem in schools today. It is not about £10 billion, it is not about £10 million, pounds. it costs nothing. You need to support the parents that want to support the children, that want to support the teachers, and you have to take the head teachers and the governors out that are preventing that from happening. I don't have a question. Sorry.
0: Thank you. Um, and another question. Okay, yes, please. Gentleman in the middle there.
1: Hi, I'm Neil, the an next teacher, and I just want to know how come you might have a school which has. Either an upward trend in quali- you know, gaining qualifications,
3: stable trend, or a downward trend, but you get blips in years, and, and sometimes you have a really good year come in, and sometimes you can have a really bad year. Yep. And what's the cause of that? You know, that's the really interesting question to me.
0: Okay, thank you. Do you want to ask? Yeah. Gentleman in the back there
5: with the chairman. Uh, thank you. My name is Chris Boverd, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Toronto. My, my question is for Professor Lopton, if I may. Um, ma'am, you suggested that uh, engineered neighbourhood mixing, or busing, as you put it in your own terms, um, would raise the performance of underperforming kids. You seem to ignore the potential of it lowering the performance of higher-performing kids uh, who come from educated or higher-income backgrounds as a professor, as a PhD, as a member of a distinguished panel, why are you against intellectual elitism?
4: Mm
5: -hmm. The people in this room are the intellectual elite. Um, The dumbing down of the average should not be what people of your job are doing. Okay. If you'd care to respond.
0: Thanks. I think we'll take one more, and then I'll put the questions to the panel. Got one more question? Thank you. Yes. Uh, Naomi Clayton from Centre for Cities um, Tim was talking about uh, London schools and educational attainment in, in London um, and there's been talk for quite some time about the impact of London challenge on uh, the improvements in, in London schools but of course recent IFS research has said actually it's, it's more to do with London's primary schools and the improvements that have been made at, at primary school um, uh level um, which may be linked to um, the national numeracy and literacy pilots but at this point they they can't really tell. I'm just interested in in the panel's um, thoughts on, on what's happening in London and why they've seen such significant improvements in educational attainment. Great, um, thank you. So we've got a wide range of questions. I'm going to open all the questions out to all of the panel, even though some have been directed at particular individuals to allow people the opportunity to comment. Steve,
1: do you want to to start off? Sure. Oh, yes, I, I don't know how to address the governor's question. That might be best for somebody else. I'm really focusing on the effect of governors or head teachers here. Um, I'll, I'll move on to the one about blips in school performance over over time, I and mean, I think the. Uh, That's just a statistical artifact, really, I think. I mean, it's mainly driven by the fact that. Each cohort has its different mix of kids. Those kids perform differently. So what you see in terms of trends in school performance are sort of general patterns due to rising or falling school quality due to the leadership, teaching, whatever it is that's uh, driving the performance. But around that, you get this fluctuation up and down, which is just cohort-to-cohort variation. It's not indicative of anything apart from... Uh, the fact that you've got a relatively small sample of kids in these schools thats uh, you know, from year to year. I mean, that's my understanding of, um, of what drives that particular feature in the data. Um, the, the question on uh, negative impacts on high achievers, uh, well, according to my results I presented here, that wouldn't be an issue because they didn't seem to be a, a benefit of uh, having higher... Achieving peers, or, or or a cost of having, um, of losing higher achieving peers. But um, I, I don't think anyone here would, um, you know, particularly want to uh, advocate sort of any sort of dumbing down or, 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 you know, reduction in the achievements of people who are going to uh, go on to do well. I mean, it's just based to, you know, it's basically a, a principle of uh, trying to increase. Equality by raising lower achievers but I don't think anyone would want to do that at the expense of, uh, of higher achieving groups um, certainly it wouldn't be my my uh, uh, goal uh, the London effect thing um, I mean I don't know much about that I don't know if we know really what's going on with London I mean there's lots of different stories it's either the London challenge uh, uh, Simon Burgess says it's to do with immigrants and the fact that London's had this huge inflow of immigrants who are very motivated and uh, 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 you know, keen on getting you know, the children a good education. Um, so I think the jury's out on exactly what's driving that at the moment, and this is kind of—I think it's a phenomenon that people have only relatively recently yep. become aware mm-hmm. of. You know, so so it uh, only recently happened. Well, it only recently <laughs> happened. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so you know, the, the, the sort of research on this is only just beginning. I think.
2: Yeah.
0: Excellent. I'm um, just taking the speakers in order of they, they spoke. Ruth, do you want to um.
2: Uh, yes, I, I mean, I just, want, I, I just wanted to explore the, the first question. Are, are you suggesting? Were you we talking about the um, introduction of uh, sort of um, uh, different kind of governance arrangements in schools? So you talked about the, f- the financial interests of some of the parents and their connection with the government. Are, are you talking about the introduction of private uh, companies as sponsors of schools or charitable interests as sponsors? Was that what you were hinting at? No. Uh-huh, right. so where children are not achieving they are allowed to continue not to achieve and where I volunteer to support children at the lower end of school you're only, only looking for volunteers to support children at the upper mm-hmm. end because they're then sharing things for scholarships and then go into the uh-huh, schools and then go into the school right. I, I can't, I'm not going to answer that question but I, th- I think Tim might have something to say about the, I mean, um, w- to what extent those are driven by yeah. the um, performance requirements on on schools and some of the work that the department's been trying to do to get schools to focus equally their attention throughout the income uh, throughout the attainment distribution should be starting to help with that, so that they're not concentrating either on thresholds or on particular either middle thresholds or higher thresholds, but they're now measured on. Uh, the gaps on the attainment of the low children. So, but Tim might have more to say. That on um, uh, on the other questions, uh, not much to add on London, except that, um, uh, that uh, um, a school composition in my research also, you know, uh, creates d- different kinds of disadvantaged school composition caused different kinds of effects on school organisation and processes. So, in the schools that I looked at, and this is a quite a gross generalisation, uh, schools in white working class areas tended to have more difficulties with um, uh, angry or disengaged uh, parents, or parents who were less convinced of the value of the education that their children had. Uh, some higher problems with uh, absence, more problems with co- uh, aggressive conflictual behaviour and so on. Schools who had the same levels or higher of free school meals with, um, in South areas which predominantly South Asian, for example, had di- uh, difficulties with language, very high levels of child poverty and material difficulties, very high levels of household overcrowding, but fewer uh, difficulties of the kind that make for uh, um, you know, d- d- behavioural problems in the classroom or a lot of time having to be spent with parents and so I think so So, it's not either composition or what schools do is what I was saying there's a relationship between composition and what uh, schools do so trying to knit uh, uh, that together and I think that is partly the London effect and also that schools in London have got very very good at dealing with uh, highly complex and um, you know d- diverse um, uh, co- cohorts and schools in uh, more homogenous areas haven't, in a way, looked at the, their uh, cohorts in the same way. And say, how do we, you know, address the, the cultural composition and, and historical composition? You know, the, where, where these people have come from in the same way, and it? so, so it's a mix. Um, coming to the uh, question that was um, uh, posed to me, well, personally, I just want to say I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced of the arguments for busing, partly because the school composition effects are small and and, uh, partly because I think that uh, in the context of those being small, that bussing may create as many difficulties for children in terms of long journeys and and so on uh, as it may. Of course, I think the evidence is a bit weak on that and not enough to justify a policy. But if it were stronger, and my reading of some of the school composition uh, uh, research is that the, the, the effects of bringing up the lower attaining children are much larger than the downward effects on the higher attaining children. And if, that were, if those were big numbers, I would say that that would be a justifiable policy. And the, and the reason I say that, I think it's the biggest problem in, that we've got in this country is our high level of social... Uh, inequality and and the the, the children of higher attaining who might be brought down a little actually can draw on a very large number of other resources in their families and communities to make sure they still do well and I think they'd pick up uh, later on in their education and and that would be a personally if the numbers were big enough I'd say that would be a cost uh, that should be borne for the betterment of our particular society with its gross inequalities but I don't think the numbers are big enough uh, to justify so I don't think we should trade little gains for slightly bigger Uh,
3: So, until now, the British government has assessed schools by whether a certain proportion of children reached a target. And that meant we were giving schools an incentive to ignore the kids who were never going to hit that target, but also often to ignore the kids who were going to reach it come what may. And so we had particularly the CD borderline in secondary school, (coughs) the obsession in some schools um, was was truly sad. I mean, it's not a decent education, it's not really why teachers went into the profession, and I am pleased to say that the new measures we're using to assess schools are essentially forms of an average where all children, or just about all children, will contribute equally, and we hope that will change the incentives in schools. It would be wrong for me to comment as a civil servant on any one school or any one child. I'd urge this man here to read a book called Fooled by Randomness by Andrew Dilnot, who presents whatever it's called on Radio 4 and is head of the UK Statistics Authority, because it's a darn good book, and I think it'll answer your question better than any of us can. Uh, But again, the new measures that we're using for school accountability are looking at progress. So a school that suddenly gets a blip year down doesn't suddenly fall down the league tables or gets a blip year up. So that we're assessing by how much the kids learn, not by what their intake is. And again, that's a more robust way for communities to get a handle on which schools are good. So we hear what you're saying, we agree with you, and we've tried to do something about it. Now, I am proud to call myself an elitist, but I'm not a diversive elitist. On the other side of Kingsway, there's a school called St. Joseph's, a primary school, where last year 50% of children, so it really serves a really poor community, 50% of children aged 11 ended up in the top quarter nationally, and there was no difference between the children who were on free school meals and the children who are not on free school meals. Now that's the sort of elitism that I am proud to support. But there are occasions when I'm willing to see the top come down, and that's particularly early on. We know that children who can't read by the age of 11, basically, it doesn't go well at secondary school. It it just doesn't. So I'm willing to to see teachers put more effort into getting all children up to a good standard at 11, even if that means a handful of children who could read even more spectacularly well, merely read very well indeed. And I see that as a parent as well of a child who was you know, towards the top end. There are other children in her class who I saw come out in a good position, who I'm sure there were times when the school put more effort into those other children than into mine, and that was socially the right thing to do. Because all of those children, or almost all, are now equipped to, to start secondary school in a reasonable place. Later on in life... You know, we fund people to do PhDs. We don't say to those who are not up to doing a PhD, well, here's the money in lieu. So the younger the child, the more egalitarian I think we should be because we're teaching schools that are critical for everyone. And that will mean some redistribution of effort within. And so to Naomi, um, uh, one of the things that has been pointed uh, to us recently is that London is a different labour market. Teaching is overwhelmingly these days a feminised workforce, particularly at primary school. And most women are married, as are most men for that matter, Um, oddly enough. Um, And most people who aren't married wish to be married at some point or live with a partner as though they were married, as it says on benefit forms. And so one thing we know is that people may wish to be in a market that works for their partner. Most teachers are married to people who are professional. We have what's called assortative mating, whereby people marry, that's the phrase, whereby people who marry people with a similar intellectual level, etc., And that means that London may just be in a different labour market, because actually, particularly for women, uh, a female teacher, particularly in a primary school, may well not be the dominant earner in her household, at which point we know that she's what's called a trailing spouse. And I was a trailing spouse. When I was a a junior academic, my wife was a trainee actuary and rather better paid than I was. She worked in London, so I didn't apply for the job at the University of Warwick. I applied for the job at Royal Holloway, even though Warwick is a better place in economic history. I was a trailing spouse. I came to London because of where my wife had her job. We are interested in whether London has access to a different pool of people as teachers. And since I'm Director of Analysis, I've just commissioned an academic to look at the Labour Force Survey, because that's what I can do these days. It's, it's a wonderful job, mine, I can tell you. Uh, so we're trying to find out the answer. Now, the Labour Force Survey is it's a sample. It's a big sample for one of these surveys. We're not sure if the sample is big enough. It looks touch and go to tell us something interesting at the London level. But we've commissioned a study of it in order to find out. So we may get the answer to whether London teachers are different because of who they are married to. And I hope they're not. Because if they are, and there's a whole bunch of people who are only willing to work in London, who are fantastic teachers, then as a nation we've got a problem. London is already the richest part of the country, by a long way. If it's the richest part of the country, and it has the best schools, and it has the best schools because it's the richest part in the country, then as a nation we're going to have a two-speed country in a way that I don't think is healthy. And it's not really Manchester that I worry about. There are lots of good jobs in Manchester. It's small places. You know, what do we do about small coastal towns? What do we do, you know, if, if I move to, you know, Yeovil to take, you know, one of my minister's constituencies, or Bognor Regis to take another of my minister's constituencies, what would my wife do? She's an actuary. There isn't much call for actuaries in Bognor or Yeovil. So that, that means, realistically, I'm not going to take a job in either of those places. If we find that's true for a lot of teachers... I'm hoping we don't find it, but I'd rather, if it is true, that we knew the answer. So yes, we're commissioning the research. Other good questions people have they think we might be able to answer, do let me know. My my pit is not bottomless for research, but I'm pleased to say that hiring academics for short pieces of work is usually good value for money.
0: Excellent, so thank you for that offer of, of, of funding for anybody who wants to bid uh, from the LSE. Thank you. Um, everybody else goes somewhere else. Um, so I am an elitist and I'm quite competitive actually when it comes to us getting funding for bids, I can
3: tell you. I hear I, yeah. I that people are offering good value for taxpayers' money, whichever university they're in.
0: I tell our Chief Financial Officer to get our indirect costs down pronto. Yep. Um, okay, so moving on then to other questions. Lots and lots of interesting things to, to be reflecting on. Yes, thank you. Gentleman at the back.
5: Thank you. My name is Geoff Parkinson. I'm currently earning my living as an art therapist. Uh, it seems to me um, this idea of commissioning academics is very enthusiastic. Um, idea that's emanating from the panel, but what would they say about actually um, the idea of interviewing parents or guardians with with the actual pupils themselves, and and really investing quite a lot of listening power to that that family, the unit, whatever it, whichever way it might be composed. Um, and And part part of my reason for saying that is that I notice up here that you know in terms of pupil achievement, you have school peer groups are more or less irrelevant. Now, that seems to me um, shocking to really to really hear that because it, from my personal experience, I feel that um, pupils do influence each other tremendously and and they, they they have an overwhelming sort of hold on each other in terms of peer pressure and this is why partly some of the teachers have difficulties, as Ruth mentioned, you know. Um, to actually control the children. So there's a number of gaps here which are so wide that it makes me think the panel are really not educated in my definition of the word. I'm sorry, it's not a personal insult there. If you're claiming to be academics sitting there and you're not emanating a kind of a sort of sensible sort of statements that, that you know are common sense, then I have to make that view
0: Okay, thank you. Do you have any other questions or comments? Yes, at the back, please.
5: Uh, Jack Worth from the National Foundation of Educational Research. Um, I absolutely agree with everything you said about teacher quality, that it's one of the most important things that affects pupil achievement. Um, and as Tim said, we've got the National Pupil Database, which tells us an awful lot about pupil achievement. Um, Currently, we can't really find out anything about teacher quality in terms of pupil achievement because uh, it's not linked. So, uh, is there a prospect to link the school workforce census and the national pupil database? (laughs)
0: Okay, I think that makes that quite a specific question. Uh, Do I have one more? We have a burning question they want to put out. Uh, I've got one in the middle here. I've got two more. So, yeah, I've got two more. So, one in the middle and then you.
3: Hello. Good evening. I'm Irfan. I work as an administrator with a security company. I don't have more experience about the education industry, but uh, recently we heard in the news, I mean, we read in the news on BBC that the way targets are given at university level and Uh, professors, teachers are pressurized to give high grades to the students. Is such thing happening at, say, primary school (coughs) level within the UK? And if that is happening, that just to meet targets, people are given high marks and people pass with, say, good grades. If that is happening, then the analysis, which is based on the quantitative data, should it not be done based on, say, qualitative data?
0: Thank
3: you very much. Okay. Good. Thank
5: you. Yes, gentlemen. I not education. Sorry. Thank you very much. Uh, you, uh, just on this question, nobody actually will, prefer, will probably. be relevant.
0: Uh, the private education and state education. Does private education benefit the students? Is it better than state education or not? In terms of the overall
5: su- the issues they have been discussing.
0: Okay. Right, I think we've got a good collection there. So i hand over to the panel again in the same order. So that would be um, Stephen, then Ruth, and then uh, Tim. Thank you.
1: Uh, okay, I think uh, if I understood uh, you correctly, uh, what you were saying is you just didn't believe the results uh, that I was presenting. Um, I take these things as I find them. I mean, of uh, uh, course, what this, the evidence doesn't suggest that nobody's influenced by their peers or by who they interact with, what it tells you is that perhaps some people uh, find it beneficial to interact with people uh, who are higher achieving, some people find it perhaps detrimental to interact with them. So on average, you get nothing. So from a sort of policy perspective, if you're just looking at the average, you don't find any sort of general effect. Of course, we've actually, I didn't present it here, but we've gone further and kind of cut the data in different ways to look at the impact on different types of children. There you don't find anything either. I mean, for sure, if you look to individuals, you will find differences because uh, that's just, you know, everyone reacts differently. Um, but the point is that, you know, on average, which is usually what you're concerned about in terms of making policy policy decisions, we just don't find anything. I mean, I would like to uh, be able to tell you that we did, but we didn't. I do have additional results again, which I didn't talk about, which looked at a range of other outcomes, things like attitudes to school, um, truancy, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, there we did find sort of some signs of, of impacts. I mean, so you know, that might, might quite be. True that actually, you know, a child you know, adop- gets a negative attitude to school because their friends have got a negative attitude to school. Um, but the point is that what we seem to find here is it just doesn't translate into actual differences in measurable educational outcomes. I mean, it, you know, you could be completely, um, you know, not liking your school, you know, moaning about it, but still the kids, you know, seem to go on and achieve perfectly well if they've come from you know, good backgrounds, and actually the kind of peer group in the neighbourhood doesn't seem to matter that much. So, I mean, I can only present what we find. Um, I'm, you know, not uh, against the idea that somehow, uh, uh, you know, interactions should be important. It's just I don't find evidence that that they are... um, in terms of linking teachers to students, I mean, okay, yeah, obviously, I've, I've asked this question before.
3: What well, wait a moment?
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs> so perhaps I'll, I'll wait. Then I'll put that one onto, onto Tim. I mean, we, we've wanted to do this for ages, uh, but uh, haven't been able to. And actually that link also, I mean, absolutely not just in terms of teacher quality measured in terms of student outcome, but in terms of teacher activities. I mean, Ruth was talking earlier about, you know, the impacts of these things on what teachers are doing, uh, you know, the sort of mode of operation in schools, if you like. I and mean, we know nothing about that because we don't have any, any data on it. Uh, and that's an important question because one of the reasons you possibly find not much of an impact from all sorts of interventions in schools is because teachers actually adjust their... Behavior and the way they teach in response to these interventions. So I mean, it could well be that find no impact from, you know, high-quality peers in the neighbourhood. simply because when teachers are confronted with an easy peer group, they you know relax their teaching a bit. And when they're confronted with a difficult peer group, then they work really hard yeah. and, and push and try and push uh, scores up. But without any information on what teachers are doing day to day, you know, you, you need a lot of detail to mm-hmm. understand that. We we can't answer that that question, right. Um, sorry, the next question I didn't quite—I didn't quite catch. Could I get what? Could someone? was about
3: dec- grade inflation and whether the underlying data are reliable enough for this research.
1: Oh, I see. That's yeah. Oh, everything we do is based on scaling. So, so the, it's not based on absolute grades. I mean, we're taking out basically any differences over time in general trends. So, we're just ranking pupils in, in terms of their position in the distribution and seeing how these. Differences in neighbourhood quality move people up and down this distribution, so we're completely eliminating any anything to do with grade inflation, general changes over time. So that's kind of not in there. I mean, if you do, I, I mean, of course, I don't know what I mean, most people approaching these kind of questions <coughs> would, would do something to take account of those kind of general changes. Yeah, yeah. So I think we I think we're okay on that one. Yeah. Um. the private, well, the private. Versus, I mean, everything I did there was just based on state schools. There was no private students in there. So, as far as that analysis goes, the private students are completely out of the picture. Uh, I haven't worked on on uh, the, you know, private school students at all, so I, you know, uh, I can't so comment specifically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I haven't worked on, on on the impacts of private schools versus versus public schools. Uh, other people might have firms um, Excellent, thank you. I
2: I don't. I'm afraid I'm only going to try and answer one question. uh, Leave the others to people who are more qualified. Uh, Your point. um, I think one of the difficulties with this kind of approach is there needs to be a separation between variables uh, in order to say one is more important than another. And and uh, so we say Steve's results. I understand the neighbourhood effects aren't important over and above. uh, other things at the individual, family, or household level. But the trouble is, in reality, it's really difficult to untangle these things. So if you're in a neighbourhood uh, where, uh, a de industrialised neighbourhood in the northeast, uh, it, uh, where the students are uh, maybe low attaining in the um, Uh, for early years of life, their parents may not have high educational qualifications, nobody might ever have been to university. That is also what constitutes the dynamics of the neighbourhood. So it's quite hard to say this is the neighbourhood and these are the individuals. So in a a sociological sense, I think it's quite hard to conceptualise in this way and possibly that's why I think neighbourhood effects can be underestimated because we're cutting out a lot of what is in fact... uh, the neighbourhood, um, and I'm, I'm not don't so say this is a criticism of Steve because I think Steve's is as sophisticated as you you can really um, get, but it it is a problem. And I just want to pick up on your I, I've read your question in a slightly different way as well. So, in why doesn't why don't people talk to the family units about the, the difficulties of achieving? And I, I think that's a real problem in some very disadvantaged schools, especially in, in white, working-class areas, that there's a sense of frustration that the children are not ready for the school, where we're not saying, how does the school be ready for the children, so that we give an equally good education to everybody who comes to the school, whatever point they are starting from, I think it's, sort of, it's the schools have to fit the kids and this is what, slightly what I was alluding to where we've got people who are coming from all around the world schools have to do that they have to say where are the children at and they've got to make the school ready for the children and I don't think the same happens uh, and I think that's part of the London effect and the small town effect that we've got that the schools aren't listening enough to what the parents and guardians want and how they want to engage with the school Right, now, let me give a related
3: answer to that question. So we in government do commission big surveys where we go and ask people what they think. Uh, the uh, obvious one at the moment is the Longitudinal <coughs> Survey of Young People of England, which is a very snappily titled thing, which I have a, I'm trying to remember the sample size. And how many? 14,000. 13,000, there we are, 14,000, my colleagues know in the front row, it's always good to have staff. Uh, So we're actually going and asking 13,000 kids what they think of the world. And we did it 10 years ago, so we can compare at the moment 13-year-olds 10 years ago and now. And the results are really striking. Teenagers just aren't what they used to be. They're talking to their parents more, they're smoking less, they're drinking less, they're committing fewer crimes. Every single indicator is going in the right direction. And we ask them batteries of questions in a really serious manner, because that sort of research is important. It's very expensive, of course. And the other thing we do are these big birth cohort surveys, of which EPI, uh, now called EPSI, is the one that's just completed, where we started interviewing the parents before the child was born. And we interviewed the children every few years and their parents every few years until they're now 18, so that we really do our best to understand their trajectories for childhood. (coughs) And these things are million-pound research projects that we sign off a budget for because we want that evidence base. So I'm with you all the way. We should ask these people. And there are different academics who do work on those data sets, who frankly, they're just different to Steve. They're not better, they're not worse. They're all part of this really important stuff we do. On, in answer to Jack's question, we have three relevant data sets here. We have a teacher's data set based on pension records that tells us things like the age of a teacher and how many years of experience they have, judged by how many years they've been in the pension scheme. We then have a teacher workforce census. I mean, you'll know this, but not everyone will. Um, Whereby we ask teachers, which years did you teach this year? Uh, Meaning, did you teach year seven or year nine, and which subjects did you teach? And then thirdly, we have the national pupil database that tells us pupil by pupil what grades they got. At the moment, we're matching the two teacher databases together. And since they both have the teacher reference number, this ought to be very easy, but there's a surprising number of transcription errors. Uh, And then we plan to link it to the National Pupil Database, but it won't tell you which teacher taught which child, because we never collect that, so we can't link it. But what it will do is allow us to answer questions about teaching intensity. So, for example, we know at the moment that a school in which children only take HGCSEs Gets exactly the same average grade, corrected for everything we can take into account, as a school where they're taught 13 GCSEs. Now the school week is the same length, which seems to tell us that you can teach just as much in one thirteenth of the timetable if that's what you're told to do by the principal as in one eighth. That's an odd finding, but it's pretty clear in the data because we do know how many GCSEs you do. But with this, we will be able to look at, for example, whether the number of hours of teaching you have between the age of 11 and 16 in any given subject is in any way correlated with your likely grade at 16. That seems to me a really interesting thing we need to know. Similarly, we'll be able to work out whether typically having more experienced teachers helps your grades. We won't know that you were taught by Mr Worsnop or Mr Baker or Mr Bentall to name my three history teachers at school, but we would know from this data set how old those three people were, whether they were typically older than your average teacher, so we could then go to another school where the teachers are typically younger and work out whether having a more experience, because, you know, if they're all old... Sorry, that's a little more disrespectful. I'm now old enough I can say this. Um, Do those things matter? Can we find schools that are at different points in the distribution? And I think we will be able to tease out a surprising amount there. What we do not want to do and what we do not believe you can do is match individual children to teachers and say who is the best teacher. They're really keen on this in the US, and I think that is profoundly mistaken, because a teacher exists in the context of their school. A genius teacher in a school that is going to pot and there's no discipline will not get good results. That does not mean they're a bad teacher. And I really don't want us to go around linking individual pupils to teachers to try and rank teachers. I think that is statistically abhorrent. I think it's immoral. I think it would discourage people from going into the profession. So, read my lips, that is not what I want to do, that is not what I want to facilitate, but I do want to know what characteristics are connected with effective teaching. So, that one you'll also be able to get the benefit of in due course. And finally, private education, does it work? Well, most private, you know, gone are the days, I think Lady Diana Spencer went to a very posh private school and got one O level. I doubt that that was actually a fair reflection of her ability. I think gone are the days when private schools were just finishing schools for the rich. Private schools are generally getting very good headline results, but they are selective on the way in. And so it's all because they're not obliged to take the Key Stage 2 tests, we can't really tell whether they're any good. I think the other question is, what do you mean by good? Um, You can buy a Ford Focus or you can buy a BMW. Even the cheapest BMW is roughly twice the price. They'll both get you from A to B, safely and reliably, but one of them will have leather seats and the other won't. Now, private schools in London are roughly three times the price of state schools. Uh, As an order of magnitude, you're talking about 15,000 compared with five. Given that they've also got a selected intake, it'll be pretty hard for them to fail, really, Um, but as I say it does depend what you want, so the school the state school of which I'm a governor, the head went to see the local private school recently and she said to me we had lunch together, she said it was a much nicer lunch than I would be able to give the other head teacher so there are some things like that that are generally true they're much more likely to have swimming pools, etc, but I think that the best school teachers in Britain are in inner city areas, the sorts of teachers who I've met who who are picking up a child every day on the way to school the head teacher who I met who was about to go to the council because one of her kids was sleeping in the car park of Iceland because they'd been made homeless. She was sleeping in the car park of Iceland because it was undercover. And she said, I am determined to get that kid into a hostel tonight. That is what the best teachers in our country look like. And even if the private school teachers are that good, their kids aren't sleeping in a car park in Iceland. So they that sort of goodness is not being liberated, it's not being needed. So no, I'm happy to say that I think the best, the most outstanding, and the people who are really changing kids' lives are to be found in state schools, and that's why I'm pleased that those people are more likely now to be knighted or mentioned in the honour system than any other profession in the country. They're transforming lives, and it's right that we as a nation recognise that.
0: Excellent. Thank you. I think that's a fantastic note on which to finish. We are slightly running over time, for which I apologise, but I think it's been a fantastic debate, and I think I really thank the panel Um, again. They've given very full, very honest, intellectually honest (coughs) answers to those questions, and I think we owe them a a big vote of thanks. So join me.